The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain and living in Canada. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Now, today's episode is schizophrenia and family caregiving. So what's schizophrenia? Well, it's a serious but treatable brain disorder. It affects the person's ability to know what is real and what is not real. It causes the person to see things that aren't there, to hear voices that are not coming from other people, to withdraw from social activity, and to appear deeply depressed. It develops among people an age range 15, 25 years to 25 years. It's a life-changing event, not only for the person, but also for the families. It does recover sufficiently so that the person can attain a quality of life that's meaningful for them. But it isn't completely curable, so treatment and support and support from the family go on being necessary. Now, it's not rare. It affects at least 1% of the population in all races, cultures, and social classes. It's not caused by poor parenting, family failures, childhood experiences, or environmental factors. To talk about the challenges of schizophrenia, our guests today are Chris Somerville and Debbie Sirota. And I'm just going to introduce them, and then uh, we'll get into the discussion. First off, Chris. Chris Somerville is one of the 11 non-government directors of the Mental Health Commission of Canada. He's been the executive director of the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society since 1995, and is currently also the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada. As a provincial and national leader and advocate, he serves on numerous boards and committees, including the Mood Disorder Society of Canada, the National Network on Mental Health, the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health, and several ethics committees. He's got an earned doctorate. He's, a certified, he's certified as a psychosocial rehabilitation practitioner and as a suicide intervention trainer. He sees mental illness as not only a health issue, but also a social justice issue. Our second guest is Debbie Sirota. She's a single parent of four daughters. One of her daughters, Tamara, age 24, lives with schizophrenia. Now, Debbie works at a major hospital in the ER as a nursing assistant. She's a full-time student in her second year at the University of Manitoba in the Faculty of Social Work. She sits on the Winnipeg Regional Community Mental Health Advisory Council, 
the Continuity Care Advisory Council, and she's a volunteer at the Schizophrenia Society and Shalom Mission. Uh, she's her daughter Tamara's substitute decision-making for health and financial affairs. She's navigated many, many systems, including justice, forensic, mental health, and supported living. Those are all the systems that schizophrenia evokes. And Debbie says that she's learned advocacy from the best and that learning advocacy has changed forever who she is. So welcome to the show, Chris and Debbie. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I'm going to go straight into the questions because it's over to you now. And starting with Chris, please tell us about the mission of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada and also say where social justice fits into the picture. Well, the Schizophrenia Society of Canada began in 1979 uh, by Bill Jeffries, and soon thereafter there were ten provincial schizophrenia societies across Canada. And our mission is to improve the quality of life of those who are affected by schizophrenia, that is the person who who lives with the illness, as well as family members and natural supports. And we do this uh, through public education, support programs, public policy, and research. Now, the reason why I believe it's a social justice issue, living in one of the wealthiest countries in Canada and knowing more today than ever before about how we help people uh, to um, get better, to access treatments, to have less relapse and less rehospitalization and return to a quality of life, not to provide those treatment options and community supports and services, well, that's plainly a social injustice issue. Right. Debbie, please tell us about your experience as the mother of a daughter with schizophrenia. Well, I, I need to say that the impact um, cannot be overestimated of uh, what it does to your family life. Um, the shame and the guilt um, undermines the confidence as a caregiver and as a mother um, that you have. And um, but I can say that I have um, I've learned so much uh, about what um, what the illness is all about and. Through that education and through that learning and from learning from others, um, I can say that what I've learned I, I want to pass on to others. And um, I feel no shame in this illness, but I, I do know that um, the impact is great. And um, where we've come from in the last number of years with my daughter, it's been amazing. And um, it, it, is, it is a very devastating experience to walk through. It's a journey that you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy, but however, there is recovery. Chris, I'm going to ask you to say more about the types of services and support you you and your affiliated associations provide for family caregivers like Debbie um, and for the particular family members affected by schizophrenia. Well, while the Schizophrenia Society of Canada advocates uh, at a federal national level, uh, it is the responsibility of the provincial schizophrenia societies to advocate for enhanced mental health services and access to various treatment and community uh, options at the provincial level. But what we endeavor to do is to be there for family members and, and those with lived experience through one-on-one -on -one consultation, whether that's in person, telephone, or Internet. We conduct family education uh, seminars. We have a Strengthening Families Together curriculum. There can be workshops provided on accessing mental health services, understanding mental health acts, 
looking at the family system and the health of it, how it can be recovery-oriented. And then some of the other things that we attempt to do is to help family members with the courtesy stigma. That's the social prejudice associated by having a family member with lived experience of schizophrenia. We provide recovery workshops, uh, helping families to work with the justice system, and then caring for the caregiver. Right. Debbie, tell us, please, about your experience, your, your, your own experience in getting services and support in caring for your daughter. Well, I, I need to say that this has been the most difficult part of the journey. Um, my daughter had seemed to have slipped through the cracks um, for the services um, and the stigma, I think, around um, um, being a single parent, you know, um, um, saying that, you know, like uh, different, you know, different doctors have, diff- you know, she's had many diagnoses, um, and through the time, um, she doesn't fit for this program. She doesn't fit for that program. Her, um, she was um, not able to. She could understand what she was reading, but um, she wasn't able to. She could she could uh, read at a normal level, but she wasn't able to comprehend what she was reading. So, in by the age of 15 or 16, she um, started with major depression. And um, after that point, at age 18, she all services are dropped because she is now considered an adult to think for herself. So no more psychiatrists. She's left on her own with me managing her. And then the psychosis starts, and um, the doctors put her on the medication. Then they take her off of the antipsychotic medication and tell me that it's just personality disorder. So, and trying to navigate through this system and giving me the advice that I need to practice tough love and let her live on her own, kick her out of the house. And I did that, and I'm advised to get a protection order, and I did that because she's just doing this to you. It's just bad personality. She ends up in the remand, and that is where we get the attention of people that listened. And all through this time, I kept notes. I kept a journal. I wrote down of what was going on, the, what the doctors were saying. So um, when it came to this point where she ended up in, this, in the remand for six months, then I got the attention of the help that she needed. And, um, and that's where she was diagnosed with schizophrenia was while she was there. So does she have the services now? Yes, because I learned to advocate after what I had been through. I, I learned from the best. I, 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 no more. I, a line was drawn in the sand, and I listened to the profession given to me, but they let me down. And I said, no more. And she has services now, but it's what I had to go through and the um, advocacy that I learned, and no more. There's no more. That she, it's just going to happen to my daughter. And um, it, it, it was a struggle. But I, I, I rattled chains because she deserved it. Yeah. Debbie, just a couple of things. First of all, from the point at which you noticed that things weren't perhaps as, as they should have been with your daughter and mm-hmm. the diagnosis of schizophrenia, how long was that? That was, um, she started having psychosis um, at age of 20. And she wasn't diagnosed 
um, officially she was diagnosed with psychosis, source unknown, and then and then it was changed back to per, uh, personality disorder by one psychiatrist, and then um, and taken off the antipsychotic medications, and then uh, two years ago when she was 22. Um, that's when she was in the remand, and that's where, um, while in there, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. I'm with you. Just please say what what's psychosis and what it actually meant to you. Psychosis is um, a loss of reality, and um, seeing things, hearing things. She would. Uh, we had an experience where she called the fire department, saying we had a, a, a gas leak in our house. Um, while I was at work, and uh, the fire department came and broke down the doors, um, and I had a brand new furnace. So this, you know, she had lost touch of reality of, of what was going on. The smell of gases. There were things that were very, um, you know. But this was what they call her first psychotic break. She was hearing voices outside her bedroom. You know, um, she was, um, you know. Um, thinking that she had AIDS, she would go to every hospital in the city looking for help, like um, that she had some kind of illness, you know. But um, and each time, you know, finally they, you know, she ended up in the hospital. But then we, she was discharged from the hospital after she had the psychosis. But there was no psychiatrist to care for her. There was no psychiatrist available, so she's on these antipsychotic medications with no doctor to follow her. Right. You know, so it's, you're left as a caregiver. Uh, what do I do now? What what is what is psychosis? You know, like I, uh, no support. No, no. After age 18, no support. There's nothing. You're left to figure this out on your own. A lonely road, Debbie. A very lonely road. Yeah. Now it is time for us to take a short break, which is what we're going to do now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Chris Somerville and Debbie Sirota. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will be back to hear more of this very important story. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Help, you know I need someone. Help. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at my. M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Chris Somerville and Debbie Sirota. Our topic is schizophrenia and family caregiving. Now, I want to talk about the key challenges, the key responses, and the key principles that are involved. 
Deb, Debbie, please talk to us about what have been and continue to be the major challenges, the really, really big challenges you've encountered in caring for your daughter, and tell us how you deal with them. Well, I I will say that um, when she was, um, after she was in the remand, she had to go in for six months into the hospital to the, so they could get the right medications because none of them seemed to be working. Um, and at that point, I felt um, she her her IQ had dropped to such um, a level that she um, was qualified for supported living. And so I felt this is the best place for her. And so I supported her, and I said, Tamara, I said, all of your other sisters have moved out. I said, now it's your turn. And I said, I'm going to be there to support you because I said, if anything happens to me, Tamara, and you're living at home with me, um, you're going to be lost. I said, I would rather be here and support you living in the community like your other sisters are living, you know, on their own, and I can be there for you. So what I I, I did for her is, is I built um, – um, Wall, you know, like I asked people to be part of her support network, and so I, um, I individually asked people that I knew that were friends of mine that knew Tamara and knew our our journey and our story. I said, "Will you be a part of her support network?" So what I have done is created a, um, it's like a protection around her, in a, in the way that we, um, we we did a map for her, for example, and we said okay, Tamara, what is it you want to do in the next six months? What do you want to do from a year from now? What do you want to do, um, you know, five years from now? So we all got together and had like a party, said, let's, let's look at this. And so we drew out a map for her so that she could see, okay, and then who can help her with this? Who, you know, who can help her with, you know, she wants to go to the Y, you know, like, who, you know, so everybody stepped up to the plate and she has, does have supports in place where, you know, people do come in and, and help her. But she is living independently, and I feel that this is the best thing for her, and I am there to support her. But the challenges that I've encountered with this is, um, and is not, you know, the communication with everybody and the amount of work that goes into this, you know, of, with the support network rallying around her. So once a month I send out an email to everybody. How is she doing? What's going on? You know, and then we get together like two or three times a year. And, you know, people, they come and take her out, you know. So it's important that they have a, a support network right? As, as well as yourself, you know. Debbie, I'm going to just interrupt you there because yeah. we're going to come back to some of these points where it's extremely important. Okay. Chris, please. Um, what Debbie's uh, indicated to us is that there are stages in the development of this illness. Please, could you summarize for us the role of the family caregiver in the various stages of development of schizophrenia? Well, the, the family plays a great and significant role in the recovery process of the individual family member, and that begins with the family learning everything it can learn about schizophrenia and mental illness and uh, recovery and and the goal of the family is to help the person get a life back it, it needs to be understood that a person who has schizophrenia is not always symptomatic in fact you can have a mild case moderate or severe case of schizophrenia i mean 25 percent will go in remission and never have another psychosis after one episode and up to 70 percent 
can recover. Now, what do we mean by that word recovery? That is learning to live beyond the limitations of the mental illness with the right community supports and treatment options. So as families begin to understand that, then uh, they're encouraged to stay engaged with the family member, not to pathologize everything as being schizophrenia, and assisting with illness management and around medications. Uh, It's fostering hope and recovery. Uh, The family has to be recovery-oriented, not pathologizing. Um, And it's then helping the family member move towards interdependence and hopefully transition into the the community. So it it is complicated and it's complex because you're, you're, you're working with a mental health system here in Canada that does not have a national mental health strategy. There are inequities and disparities. Accessing treatment is very difficult. In Toronto, you can wait up to a year to see a psychiatrist. So families do feel um, often abandoned. Uh, it's often it's not easy to make a correct diagnosis of schizophrenia. Uh, furthermore, recovery is more than symptom management or symptom reduction. Uh, we've moved way beyond that, that uh, although it does involve that, it's helping that person to be able to live beyond the limitations of the mental illness and to to reintegrate back into community. So therefore, being a family caregiver is not equivalent to being a caretaker. Schizophrenia is not Alzheimer's. Right, right. Very, very important point. Mm-hmm. Debbie, I'm going to uh, you mentioned being an advocate, and that becomes really the challenge of, at times of being the eyes, the ears, and the voice for the person you're caring for. Mm-hmm. Please tell us where the particular points were at which you really needed to take over as the advocate for your daughter? Um, For me, I think um, it was um, the multiple, um, you know, listening to the profession given to me, um, you know, I, I felt that, you know, there's something that is not right here because she's psychotic and yet she's not being treated as psychotic, and um, the, the police, anybody that would come to her house would see that she was totally psychotic, but yet you would take her to see, you know, the profession, and they would say, no, it's just personality. So, um, and I thought, you know, like, I, I, I don't want to see anything happen to her, um, but yet I felt really, I felt totally alone, and that's um, when I said, okay, um what am I going to? What, how am I going to deal with this? And also, uh, the the other point I think that really um, hit home for me that um, that's it. You know, like she deserves the best. Is um, when she was so ill after getting out of the remand before she went into the hospital, living in the in in um, mental health housing in Winnipeg. Um, she. Uh, walked to a major town outside of out of our town in 50 below weather and bare feet and almost lost her feet um, exposed to the cold weather and and felt no pain she felt no pain about this and I thought I'm not going to lose my daughter at the expense of um, her living in the community she deserves the best of care right. and so I rallied I I um, I said, you know, this no more is this going to happen. So I, I felt that um, the the job that I did in 
in becoming the the eyes and ears and the voice for her um, was is so was so important because they would have just let her you know like been another statistic of yep. Uh, yep. another death you know yep. and I I no that's not going to happen to my daughter that's enough that's the advocacy yeah Chris now um, for a person with schizophrenia. Um, when is it important to keep private the information that he or she has the condition? And when is it important for that information to be shared? And with whom should it be shared? Well, this is quite controversial today in terms of personal health information and privacy legislation. Uh, I would say that when the adult person who has a mental illness, who has competency and capacity, if they have competency and capacity, if that adult person asks for the information not to be shared, then it shouldn't be shared. Um, the information wouldn't be shared when it's used in a discriminatory fashion. For example, I don't know too many people who would put down, you know, experience with schizophrenia on their resume. Um, there would be times that in employment settings you would not, you know, let your colleagues know because of the social prejudice towards people with mental illnesses. But on the other hand, uh, family members, uh, are deserving and ought to have access to um, information about how their loved one is being um, receiving treatments and what will help and, and what will not help. Obviously, you can share information with police and other service uh, providers. But the goal here is shared decision-making. So you, you have the expertise or expertness of the doctor who knows about treatment and um, under, under, understands the etiology and of the illness, et cetera. But you also have the expertise of the patient who knows what will help or hinder them in the recovery process, but also family members then. Um, in our Western culture, we, we've gone so extreme on individual rights that uh, we need to appreciate um, the culture of some developing countries that have more of an emphasis on family and community. Yeah. This um, question for you, very very quickly, because we're going to run out of time, Debbie. Mm -hmm. How do you decide when and when not to tell others about your daughter's condition? Just very quickly. Well, I do let, I do run it by t my daughter. You know, Tamara, is it okay if I share um, about um, your condition or what you're living with? Um, and when I have the okay from her, then I will go ahead and share it. Um, I'm very careful about um, what what I share um, because I know of the stigma and I am aware of what um, how people react to it. Right. In other words, you're following what Chris was saying, and that is respecting the input from yeah. your daughter yeah. as a, if I can use this word, as an autonomous person. Yes. Now, we are going to go into the break once more. It's time, I'm afraid, to pay the rent, um, and we're going to do that. So this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Chris Somerville and Debbie Sirota. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We are back with much more. This is Ed Krell, CEO and President of Destination Maternity Corporation. Since 2001, we've been working together with the March of Dimes for stronger, healthier babies. Did you know that in America, one in eight babies is born too soon? Those who survive their early birth can suffer serious and sometimes lifelong health problems. Help bring healthy babies home. 
Join Destination Maternity and the March of Dimes in fighting premature births. Go to marchofdimes.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Chris Somerville and Debbie Sirota. Our topic is schizophrenia and family caregiving. So, Debbie, one of the intentions for care and support for persons with schizophrenia is improving their quality of life, and Chris has already talked about us about that. Tell us about the quality of life as you and your do- daughter have both experienced it, and in particular, how you're experiencing it now. Um, when I look at where she was, um, walking the streets of Winnipeg, homeless, living in a shelter, um, I now see she has come so far. It is totally amazing. And she does have quality of life. She does volunteer. She does um, participate in, in, she goes to the, there's a women's group. Um, and so she she's understanding her illness more. And so um, she has quality of life. And when she has quality of life, then I have quality of life. And um, I'm there for her, but she, you know, I'm, it's other people around her too. It's, it's not just me. But she is learning to participate and to understand what she lives with. And that makes all the difference of having this, these supports in the community. That's a quality of life, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Chris, um, you've mentioned this. This has been mentioned. Um, that sometimes people with mental illness, schizophrenia, get into trouble with the police. Um, you it's been mentioned that this happens in schizophrenia. So what's the advice you have for family caregivers when this, is, this thing happens to a member of their family? Well, I, I think um, you really have to take on the role of an advocate when your loved one gets involved with the justice system. And unfortunately, uh, here in Canada, we do not have adequate police training uh, what that means is officers being able to recognize the signs and symptoms of a person with mental illness like schizophrenia and then knowing how to respond to the person. So typical p- police training really doesn't address encounters with people with schizophrenia, psychosis, and bipolar. But officers can, in fact, learn how to respond, uh, recognize and respond, and therefore, rather than taking them to the remand center and and charging them and booking them, they can divert them from the typical justice system to um, the hospital. But unfortunately, families will realize that that there are times too many occasions in which there's not a hospital bed, there's not the access to the services, so the person winds back up in the remand center. So you you have to have an attorney that understands schizophrenia, and um, 
we need mental health courts so that uh, if charge is laid and the person accepts the charges, uh, then they're not just sitting in jails and prisons being criminalized, but they're receiving supports and services through the mental health uh, court. Um, very challenging uh, for families. This, this, the problem is not because of the sick person, but the, the sick system uh, that we have here that is not truly integrated and coordinated. So families have to become even stronger advocates when their loved one becomes involved in the judicial system. Right. Um, Debbie, mm-hmm. um, we've talked about stigmatization and discrimination. Um, I get the impression, tell me whether I'm right or wrong, that the picture is improving. And I'd also like you to say whether you personally have experienced anything like stigmatization and discrimination towards your daughter, your family, or you yourself. If that was the case, how did you deal with it? Or if you were to experience it, how would you deal with it? Um, Of course, there's stigmatization. Um, But I've educated myself, I think, about what uh, stigma is all about and and counteracting on what, um, in, in talking about the elephant that's in the room, and not to feel shame of living with, just like anybody living with diabetes or anything like that. Um, this this is a major illness, you know. This is a medical illness that, and it has to be exposed. You know that people live with it, people recover, people get better. Um, um, what I have experienced um, in in my, you know, uh, my daughter being through the justice system and having a case manager and me having to step back, um, it, it was a difficult road, you know, and I, but I've learned that uh, you need to speak about the elephant in the room. There's no shame in this. And um, I, if, with discrimination, I felt that um, people need to understand what this illness is about and educate them about what this illness is about and get information for them so that they understand that this this is everybody lives with illnesses and this is just another illness a major illness that is lifelong and um and not feeling shame in it that's very clear chris is it the case that depression or even suicide are associated with schizophrenia um Regardless, what advice do you have for family caregivers when the loved one seems depressed and withdrawn? Where should they go first for advice, and then what? Chris? Well, the depression may be an element of the schizophrenia itself, or it can be the person's response to the losses and aloneness. Suicide is fundamentally about losses, profound losses, and people with schizophrenia Uh, They have the loss of dignity and citizenship, loss of income and housing. They're marginalized by society's prejudice towards them. And then the person internalizes that, and it's called self-stigma, in which I've got a broken brain. Uh, Yes, all these things are true, what society says. Uh, I'm less deserving. And the folks that I've talked with in groups that have attempted suicide and um, didn't die, um, they talk about those losses and, and aloneness. And then the depression comes, which robs you, uh, robs you of the energy and robs you of hope that, that things uh, can get better. So my advice to family caregivers when their loved ones seem depressed and withdrawn is to stay engaged and actually talk about 
the suicidal feelings. That, that doesn't cause one to suicide by talking about the feelings. And then connecting them to appropriate services that deal specifically uh, with the depression and the losses and aloneness. So this is where self-help groups come in and peer support workers. Uh, here in Canada, we're developing uh, the role of a peer support worker, and that's people with lived experience of mental illness who go back and work in the mental health system to promote hope and recovery and, and tell of their positive stories of recovery as well as the hell, hellishness stories of um, their schizophrenia. Right. Um, you used the word positive there. I'm now going to ask you both the same question, and starting with Debbie. Debbie, what is it that makes the sun shine for you and your daughter? The sun shines because there is recovery, and I've been a participant of it with my daughter. I've seen how far she's come, um, I've, how much she's learned about, the, about what she lives with, and um, there was a time when she would not even um, admit that she had schizophrenia, but now she understands what it is. Um, it's about going for a walk in the park with her. It's about laughing with her. It's about being normal with her. It's about the new Tamara that I have and letting go of what was and knowing that this is a new girl that I have and a new life that she has and being a participant with her in this life. That's sun shining. Chris, mm -hmm. same question for you. What makes the sun shine for you in your work? Well, when family members and uh, consumers come into my office or they call me and say, Chris, you gave me hope. When I had no hope three years ago, and you said to me, I'll hold, I will hold hope for you. And I often will say that to family members and consumers who are on the beginning road of recovery. So that, that creates a lot of sunshine in my life. And from my Christian spirituality, um, it's, it's a ministry. And as much as you did it under the least of these, uh, you, you've, you, you've done it for the, for the Lord, as I understand it. Yeah. Let's just stay with this positive um, aspect, hope is a word that has been used. You've used it. Um, Debbie, what were the things, what was the turning point when the hope started to overcome what I'll call the pessimism? When was that moment? Um, it's, you know, what Chris has just uh, been talking about. Um, I was a participant when he said he would ho hold the hope for me. Um, and it was about how to navigate um, through all of this stuff. But it, what, what was important was rallying people around me who supported me, who walked through this journey with me. Um, and during this time, I worked full-time and still uh, carried on and still um, worked through all of the grieving process and everything that you need to go through. But when I knew that there was hope, when I, when I saw that there was a, uh, a diagnosis, and I saw that this, finally, we know where we're going, and it was um, having the support of the Schizophrenia Society. Um, I can't tell you what they, what they meant to me, and, and for my daughter now to be going and having the support of a women's group and, and learning about living with, and that's what it's all about for her. And me being there and knowing that 
This is not forever. Yeah, it, she may re- relapse. This can happen, but there, there is, there is quality of life. There, it, you know, there is recovery. This is only, it's a lifelong recovery. But it's, this is the new. I have a new daughter, and this is what I cherish: is is walking this road with her. Chris, just very quickly, because we're going into a break. Is what Debbie's been talking about what you call holding hope? Yes, it is. That um, I have an odd saying that if you're going to have schizophrenia, then this is the best day to have it because we know more about what helps people to get better, have less relapse, less rehospitalization, to reintegrate back into society and have quality of life. So that's evidence. And so that evidence gives us the hope but yet when you get started in the mental health system, you don't know anything about this. You're just devastated um, by the, the profound loss and, and the shock and the trauma of it all. And so at the very beginning, yes, it's, it feels like and it looks very hopeless, but the evidence is there. Um, the story is in. The good news uh, is that schizophrenia is treatable and recovery of a quality of life is possible we as a society just have to do a better job of creating environments in which that can take place. Fair enough. Now, again, it's the break. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guests are Chris Somerville and Debbie Sirota. Uh, you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned, because in the last segment, we're going to be talking about what needs to be done, um, I think, to build on this important message, vital message of hope. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, 
Chris Somerville and Debbie Sirota. Our topic is schizophrenia and family caregiving. Now, family caregiving is more and more important, not just for families, but for the healthcare systems and society as a whole in North America, Europe, and beyond. So let's talk about how the healthcare system can better support family caregivers looking after family members with schizophrenia. And if I could just report, refer back to what both Debbie and Chris were saying in the last segment, it is that hope um, is a crucial factor, a critical factor. And I think we're also talking about hope for the family caregivers as well as the person with the, with the affected by schizophrenia. So first of all, Chris, what are the changes that you believe are most needed by family caregivers with a family member with schizophrenia? Well, family members need access to early treatment. On an average, it takes anywhere from 5 to 10 years before a person will get a diagnosis and receive treatment, so access to early treatment. Family members need to be assisted in understanding the process of recovery so that they can promote this, whereas we've not done a good job of that historically. Uh, just tell the person to go home, take their medications, life is over. Another thing is that families need to be included in shared decision-making. And um, so I don't think privacy legislation, in fact, hinders a doctor from being able to talk with families about what illness is and what their philosophy of treatment is, even though they may not be able to speak to the specifics of their loved one. Another thing is families need enhanced community supports and services. The number one issue is across Canada by both consumers and family members is the issue of safe, affordable housing for those who are disabled by their, their mental illness. And then finally, the forensic system. Uh, we have to stop criminalizing uh, people with mental illness. That's not to say that people with mental illnesses can't do unacceptable things uh, by volition and will, and it's not so much a part of their mental illness. But when the mental illness and fact has been shown to be a key determinant factor of their involvement in the justice system. Prisons and jails are not the place for them. It's, um, you know, it's hospitals and community support services. Right. Debbie, question for you. What are the changes you would like to see? And here I'm going to say to you, let's suppose you're in charge. Um, you, somebody approaches you from government and says, Debbie, you, you've traveled the road. What are the changes you want to make in the system? So I'm asking you, what are the changes you would like to see for family caregivers who are traveling the road you traveled with your daughter? Um, access to information. Um, like for me, I felt that the, the basic information about a diagnosis, the treatment plan, the options, a prognosis, you know, um, and to be informed about um, behavior management, the advice and guidance about resources in the community, um, an education that can assist them in coping, uh, uh, can assist in coping with mental illness. Um, some of these things we've already been discussing. But um, I think to be better supported in the contribution that you're making towards recovery and well-being for your um, loved one. Um, I think that that is vital, that it, you're recognized, that you're not, you know, an outsider, but you are recognized for, for your part in, um, in giving this information, in, in supporting your, your child, you know? Right. 
Chris, a broader social question now. In whose best interests are the changes that you'd like to see, and that, for that matter, the changes that Debbie would like to see? And why are these interests so important? Very philosophical, but please say what you think about those interests that are best served. Well, some will say the person with the lived experience. Some will say the family member. But you know what? It's, it's a community issue. So I would say it's in the best interest of the community, and that is person and family and society and service providers, because it deals with the fundamental question of what kind of community do we want to be and how do we relate and how do we have relational practices with each other regardless of disability, illness, gifts, et cetera. So um, that would be the perspective that I would answer the, the question from, and we have a long ways to go in terms of that emphasis on a community model. Does that go back to your, to your um, in, interest in, in and focus on social justice, Chris? Uh, exactly, exactly. Uh, because we do not live in isolation. We shouldn't live in isolation. Uh, we are community, and as, as loved ones get better, hopefully the family gets better, the family learns something from it. Um, service providers uh, feel empowered and welcomed uh, as well. But un unfortunately, in our Western culture, we've become so individualistic and fragmented, and um, we're struggling with how to live with less resources. And, and I think it's, it's, it's going to propel us back to more of a community practice and, 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 and relational practices in, in all our relationships. Right. Debbie? This is a question addressed to you as the person that, who uh, I'd like to see in charge. Uh, uh, what's really at stake here? Why should the decision makers, you know, the people who allocate resources in our society, implement the changes that you and Chris are advocating? Why should they do it? You know, if they did, if they did pay attention to, um, um, to better support um, family caregivers, um, you, you need to think about the increased cost of care. Um, because of the support I've been able to give my daughter, she has not been back in the hospital um, for t almost three years. Um, and it produces um, a, a better so, you know, social outcomes for both those living with the illness and for the families themselves. I mean, the cost to the government by supporting family caregivers is way beyond, you know, if it, than having to uh, work with the systems as they are. Right. <clears throat> Chris, I want to take you back to something you said, which is um, that there should be no barrier between the physician who's treating the person with schizophrenia and the family in regard to talking about the illness and the disease. Now, as a one-time physician, it's, I'm not being negative here, it surprises me that you say that. So please could you, you tell me what you think the real problem there is and what physicians ought to know or learn about their role in such circumstances. Well, with all due respect to physicians and service pro providers, I think oftentimes they hide behind privacy legislation. Um, again, um, they can talk with families. They may not be able to talk about the specifics of the, the, the case, but they can share their understanding of 
mental illness, their philosophy of treatment and, and outcomes. Uh, when you do surveys with patients, um, would you would it be okay if the doctor talked with a family member? Up to 90% of patients with mental illness say yes, it would be all right. Now, when you when you survey service providers and you ask them how many of you ask, take the initiative and are proactive in asking the patient, uh, what family member could we bring into this shared decision making? Only about 40% of service providers ask the question. And privacy legislation does not prevent uh, the, the doctor from asking the question and taking the initiative. Unfortunately, doctors assume that the patient doesn't uh, want a family member to be involved. Furthermore, here in Canada, some doctors would want to be remunerated for the consultation, um, and that's, that doesn't happen yet. Uh, thirdly, is that uh, doctors generally don't get a lot of training in, in family systems and, 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 and therapy, uh, and consequently a lot of them just don't feel comfortable knowing how to work in a relationship with family members, and, and especially when families may be uh, hurting, upset, um, mad, angry, experiencing their own trauma. Sure. There's work to do there. Debbie, I'm going to ask you a quick question. It does have to be quick because we are going to run into the close. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned your need for information. There's talk about producing what might be called family care guidelines for families facing these situations. They're a bit like the clinical practice guidelines, which I'm sure you're aware of, that are used for healthcare professionals to mm-hmm. say this is the best practice in the circumstances. Would you see uh, a a family care guideline being useful, would it have been useful to you and would be would it be the sort of thing you'd like to see developed? Yeah, like, uh, you know, to understand that, you know, it's, it, there are guidelines that families have a, have a right to know, you know, about this illness because this is unnavigated territory that you're walking into. And to understand that this is the guidelines that, yes, this, this needs to be done. There needs to be, you know, when they get into the legal system, to understand the legal, you know, like the potential for tragedy and helpful attempts to, you know, even to prevent disaster from occurring. There's different guidelines that, you know, that we're, you know, we're human beings too, you know. Yep. And we didn't ask for this. Nobody asked for this, but we're here. And, and what's, what's the journey we're walking? Nobody warned you that this was going to happen. Nobody. No, and that's where information comes in. Yes. Now, unfortunately, I'm afraid we have to come to the end of this, um, what, if I may say, so powerful discussion. And I want to thank you, first of all, to our listeners, and to invite you, please, to email us with any comments and questions to um, Chris and Debbie, which I'll be very happy to pass on. Um, I want to say a thank you to Chris and Debbie, not only for sharing your experience and your insights and your advice, but also making clear to us all the importance of hope. Um, You are, in the best possible way, the distributors, almost the merchants of hope, when hope is probably very lacking in the life experiences of family caregivers and the members themselves who are faced with this condition. What you've made very, very clear to us is, yes, there are good, strong grounds for hope. Mm-hmm. And I want, I want to say thank you to that, 
deeply because I think that's a, a really powerful message. And then I'm going to say keep up the good work because it really is good work. Now, in our next episode, we're going to be talking about caregiving um, for people with HIV AIDS. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 